Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Husky Talk. We are your hosts, Geneva and Bentley. Today on our show, we will be interviewing the executive producer of Iditarod Insider and Sports Announcer. Please welcome back to the show, Greg Heister. Hey, Greg. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, guys. How are you? It's great to be back. We're doing good. Thank you for coming back on another episode of Husky Talk. Yeah, you bet. I'm glad to be here. Before we start our interview with you, we are going to let or test your Iditarod knowledge with five trivia questions. <laughs> Uh-oh. Are you ready? I'm ready. Shoot. Who was the first female champion of the Iditarod? Oh, uh, that would be Libby Riddles. Yep. What is the halfway checkpoint of the northern route? The northern route would be Cripple. Yep. How many minutes apart do mushers start? Oh, wow. That's a t- I think it's two minutes. That's correct. Okay, good. Pressure was on on that one. What was used for the very first finish line in the Iditarod? Uh, what was used? Uh, um, I believe it was Kool-Aid sprinkled yep, across correct. the line. Yes. Who has the fastest finish time? I believe it's Mitch Seavey still. Yep. Yep. All right. Is that five? Yeah. Okay, good. I got them right. Wow, that's great. It's early here, too. Good job on the trivia. You were five out of five. Now nice. we're going to find out a little bit more about you. Okay. First of all, we heard that you recently returned home from a trip to the Amazon. Can I you did. tell us a little bit about the trip and why you were there? Well, I'll start with why. I, um, I have a television show called Seasons on the Fly that airs on Discovery Channel and NBC Sports Network weekly. So. We were there shooting an episode of fly fishing for peacock bass and the other species that that live in the uh, in the river. We were probably 1,500 miles from saltwater, upriver of a large city called Manaus, and I was on a floating lodge, a boat that we fished different parts of the river every day, and it's a spectacular place. The the water was high, which means that the river basin was full of life. River was full of dolphins, and half of them were pink literally were pink. Uh, there were blue and yellow macaws flying over us all day and scarlet macaws and just birds of every kind of species. It's a, it's a magical place, and I, I hope that uh, a lot of the world somehow gets to go there and see it. It's one of the great ecosystems that we have on this planet. That sounds awesome. When is your show yeah. Well, right now it airs on Thursdays. On, well, oh, the, the show on the Amazon will probably air in January or February. So I'm working on a show right now from Belize, and then I have another one from northeastern Canada to get done, and then, and then it'll be the show from the Amazon that I'll work on this winter. Very cool. Yeah. Did you happen to see the fire? Well, you know, I get this question a lot, and... There there were fires, there's no doubt. You know, there's people living along the Amazon that uh, don't live like you and I. They don't have 
a lot of them don't have electricity. There's no phones. There's no communications, and so they they survive a true subsistence lifestyle. So they're living off the earth, and a lot like we do in this part of the country, where farmers will burn down stubble in the fall so that uh, they have good crops in the spring. A lot of the farmers will do that on the river uh, where we were. So. I saw smoke. I didn't see the major fire that the world is is was concerned about. When I talked to the people who live on the river, they didn't seem to think that the fire was as big as it had been in the past. Now, they don't have television. They don't have news. And so I don't know exactly what they're able to uh, to get from, from living out there. But it didn't seem to be as big of an issue for the people living on the Amazon as it was for us living on the outside looking in. So it's really kind of hard to tell how devastating that fire was or wasn't. And, um, I don't know, guys. I don't know. It's kind of a hard hard thing for me because I went there totally expecting, you know, to see what the world was talking about, and, and frankly, I just didn't see it. Uh, for, the listeners that, for the listeners that don't know, can you tell us what the Iditarod Insider is? Yeah, so the Iditarod Insider, you know, we, we've been described for many years as media, you know, and I try to retrain everybody. Uh, we're not really media. We are, in essence, the marketing wing of the race, and we are a conduit or a connection uh, between the event and the fan base. And, um, and we are also the financial foundation of the event. And so um, it's it's a kind of a an education process that we have to go through. You know, everybody who donates uh, to the insider and becomes part of the team is actually help helping financially put the race on. And so we are a marketing wing. We are trying to produce and provide a connection between the fans and the event, and to bring the race to the world like it's never been seen before with you know with live cameras and wall-to-wall, 24-hour-a-day coverage, uh, and making sure that our camera's in places that the others are, are never there and, and stuff. So it's, it's a really important piece to the puzzle as far as keeping Joe Reddington's dream alive, where he wanted to make sure that the sled dog did not disappear from the landscapes of Alaska. And without the money and the finances that the insider creates, it would be hard, this event would be hard-pressed today uh, to continue. And so it's a lot of things to the event today. And, but mostly what I tell people is that it's a way for fans to get involved and it's a way for fans uh, to ensure that the event continues on for generations to come. That sounds oh. interesting. Yeah. What inspired you to get involved with Iditarod? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it started when I was young. I was uh, in my mid-20s, and I got to go out on the trail for the first time in 1992. And uh, I'm a storyteller, you know, working in television. Uh, I love to tell stories. And I just, you know, I've covered Super Bowls and World Series and uh, Final Fours and all of that stuff. And uh, I don't think that there's a greater sporting event in our country today. And I just love telling the story of the race. And, and I think I'm... I'm attracted to it for different reasons. You know, most people love the Iditarod because of the dogs and because, it, you know, it's a, it's a trail that goes across the state of Alaska. But really, it's the people that have committed their lives to this event 
and this lifestyle that have really captured my interest and my imagination over the years. Many of them are, you know, really educated. They're the hardest working people that uh, you'll be around. They're sophisticated in many ways, and yet uh, they have sacrificed chasing the almighty dollar for lifestyle. And I think that there's so many lessons to be learned uh, from these people who have given up uh, what society believes is a successful life to go out and do with their days in this planet, with what they want to do with them. And so I've always been captivated by that. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the people who who live, truly live the lifestyle. And the dogs are amazing. The country that this thing goes through is, is amazing. And so, you know, it's like Doug Swingley uh, described a very, very long time ago, that if you stand too close to the edge of the Iditarod, it's like a vortex, and you get you get caught up in it, and... Next thing you know, you're you're neck deep in it, and you can't get out. And it that's what happened for me. I just wasn't on the, you know, the a sled going across Alaska. I got caught up in a different way. Like an addiction. <laughs> well, um, it's 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 different in that it's you know most addictions are a negative thing in life. This has been a really positive thing for me in my life. It's allowed me to develop a lot of skills and it's allowed me to, to meet a lot of people and to have great friends and, and stuff. So I wouldn't describe it as an addiction, but it has certainly been something that um, I have been highly motivi- motivated by and inspired by, and it's brought so much more to my life than I've actually, um, than I've given it. Uh, I believe that. And so I think that, you know, Joe Reddington's dream and and this lifestyle is still all uh, very much alive today and worth pursuing. And, um, and I'm honored to be, you know, just a little part of that. So right now we are on the, or in the months leading up to the Iditarod. Are you doing anything yeah. with the Iditarod now? Yeah, so we've been shooting uh, pieces all summer. I don't know if you guys have seen them on Iditarod's Instagram page or Facebook page, but we've been... Um, going to different kennels all summer. I made a couple trips up there, and I have another one coming here in October or November just to go up and check in with a select few mushers and see how they're getting ready for the training season. For some, it's already begun. Uh, And so, yeah, I I think that, you know, the Iditarod is, for them, is is a a 365-day-a-year pursuit. And I think for the insider, we're moving that way as well. Uh, so we're going to be doing more in the off season uh, with everybody, so that we can talk about what the dogs do all summer. I think that there's a, a feeling out there that they just, you know, they're just tied to their dog houses and they live a really boring off season. And and what I'm finding out in my travels and and the ability to tell the stories is just not true. Um, that you know most dogs, like we 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 have a dog here. It's it's a um, a little French bulldog and. You know, it sits around the house and sleeps all day, and uh, the Iditarod dogs don't. I mean, they're all out running around, and and, uh, they're getting touched by people in a lot of different tour operations, and and they live nothing short of a great life. And so we're trying to bring that story to the world right now, and and so that people understand that the Iditarod is, for some, is only 10 days out of the year. For others, it might be 15 days, but for these dogs, it is... It is a tremendously great life, and it's an active life, and it's a life where they're 
touched and uh, they're inspired by by human contact and so uh, we're we're working on bringing those stories have you guys seen any of those yeah okay great great so yeah we're working on that and I'll be headed up here soon to shoot some more that sounds cool yeah Tell us what is going on in your head before the race. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot because, uh, as you guys know, it's a thousand miles. Uh, it's not like if you forget something when you go out there that you can run down to the to Home Depot or the grocery store and buy it. And right, so what you have and what you take out there is what you have. We're, we're not much different than the the mushers in that way. So if we forget a connection of some sort or a cable or if a camera breaks, there's a lot of uh, stress and all of that. So my mind is, 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 you know, leading this thing is not a whole lot different than Martin Boozer, Jeff King, or anybody else heading out on the trail where they, they have to make sure that when they leave Willow that they've got everything that they need in the sled. So it, there's sleepless nights for our team as well and making sure that we've got all our T's crossed and I's dotted and uh, just worrying about the logistics of all of it. And so um, there's that part of it. And then there's always, you know, the, the feeling of heading out on a great adventure. And every Iditarod is different, and uh, every story is different. Every day out there is different. You never know what could happen. And so there's great suspense in all of that. And as you guys know as fans, and I'm sure you watch it day by day as the race progresses, you just never know uh, what could happen, and I think that's part of what draws a lot of us to this event is just the great unknown. And um, when with that, there's there's inspiration, there's anticipation, there's some stress in that, and uh, just some great emotions. I think that we all get to feel as this race begins. Since you created the, the documentary, it's probably pretty busy for you after the race is finished. Can you talk? Can you talk to us about what goes on right after the race for you? Yeah. So obviously we stay in Nome until every team gets to the finish line, and uh, hopefully that happens by the banquet on the Sunday after the race. And then usually by Monday I'm headed out of Nome, uh, back to Spokane, Washington, where I live. And in that four or five days after the the winner gets there, and then the banquet. Our team is still there shooting uh, teams arriving and, and posting uh, the finishes where I'm off in a corner somewhere uh, logging footage and writing the documentary. And so uh, by the time I get home, I hope in those five days that I've got the show written so that when I get home to Spokane, I can sit down and start editing. Um, it's an editing process that, you know, I'm going to work uh, 10 hours, 12 hours a day on it for a month and a half. Uh, to get it done, so and it's a it's a it's a really difficult deadline because we want to try to move it fast and and get it out to the fans of the race while uh, the interest is still there. But it's a it's an epic, monumental undertaking because of the size of the documentary and the, the amount of footage that we have to go through. Uh, you know, this year's show was well over two hours long, and so uh, and it, that's long. But we I try to get everybody that we talk to on the trail in those documentaries and so that their face and their name and uh, their moment in the race is 
is in these documentaries that will live on for generations, which is the hope. Wow, that's a lot of work. <laughs> it is good. It's a, it's a crazy... I tell people all the time that, you know, for most, the Iditarod ends on that Sunday at the banquet, but for me, my... My trail continues for another month and a half or two months. Can you share with us one of your favorite stories that you witnessed during the Iditarod? Oh wow, guys! There's been there's been so many. I, I think from a you know a kind of a broad view, you know, the Lance Mackey years and him winning championships. I think were just were just magic and electric. And I, I don't know if, if there'll ever be a better story of the way, you know, a cancer survivor uh, winning the quest and then uh, winning the Iditarod, something that people said would never, ever be done, and he did it four years in a row. I, I don't think we'll ever beat that. Um, you know, Susan Butcher told me a long time ago, like long, long, mid-'90s when I interviewed her once, I, you know, I asked her what was her favorite Iditarod, and, and she didn't say any of her wins. She said her very first Iditarod. And so I kind of go back to the same thing. You know, my very, very first Iditarod and being out there, I'll never forget. Uh, it was super cold. I remember it was 63 below zero on the Yukon River, and I was camped out in a tent um, and trying to sleep in that. And the things that you see uh, when the weather is like that and how difficult it is for the mushers, the dogs do fine in it, but uh, it's a really cold event. I remember, uh, you know, Joe Reddington coming through, uh, the Delzell Gorge when I was camped out in there one year and having a great conversation with him. Uh, I've seen, you know, wolves kill moose on the trail, which was something that I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, there's, there's just, it's hard to pinpoint it down to one. You know, the, there's so little light pollution out on that trail, so the Aurora Borealis and the northern light shows that you get to see are just spectacular at times. Uh, I've been out there, I, I forget what year it was, 96, 97, Hellbop's Comet came through, which was a famous comet at the time. And so, you know, I remember being camped out uh, in the gorge or up in the Alaska Range and, and the comets overhead and dog teams coming through. So it's uh, it would be hard to, to pinpoint one, but uh, there have been, certainly have, have been many, and... Um, yeah, I, I, I hope that answers your question. It does. Okay, good. Talk to us about what about how you've seen the Iditarod change over the years. Well, the 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 thing that comes to mind right away is how the trail has changed. You know that they 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 drag the trail before the teams come down there, and I, I don't know how many thousands of trail laps that they put out as markers. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you know, they, they, they really groom the trail. The trail itself has changed so much. Uh, and then there's the other obvious changes, you know, the sleds. Like, you know, there's so many mushers today that are sitting down uh, on their way to Nome. But uh, there was a time when that just didn't exist. Like, everybody was standing up the entire thousand miles. Uh, so uh, it's... It's changed that. Obviously, the weather has changed. The speed of the race has changed. You know, even the dogs have changed. Uh, you don't see a lot of the heavy fur-bearing uh, dogs that you once saw out there uh, because, you know, uh, when they started 
putting straw out on the race so that the dogs could sleep on straw. Uh, you know, a lot of things different uh, changed with that, with the species of dog and and things like that. Um, you know, I think that the trail changing is is probably the thing that I've witnessed most, where they put a lot of time now into making sure that it is ultra safe and ultra groomed and easier for the dog teams to to get to know them. Um, and I think it's like everything else in life. You know, the the clothing and the gear has, has made it easier. The sleds and the fact that you can sit down now has certainly made it easier. The trail itself has made it easier. Uh, it's still very difficult, and I believe it's still the greatest adventure race in the world. But it's not as tough as it once was. There's no doubt about that. I don't think anybody can argue that. That when you look at the... You know, the teams that ran the race in the 70s and 80s and even the early and mid-90s, uh, it's a it's a completely different race today than it was uh, then. Uh, and it's not bad. I'm not saying any of that's bad. I'm just saying that's progress, and that's, that's the way it has to happen. And, you know, dog care has changed. And, you know, these people that, that fight the race and believe that it's not bad for these animals, I just think, are, are just not well-informed. Um, so... Uh, it's changed in a lot of ways, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, can you talk to us about what your relationship is like with the mushers? Well, you know, I, I think it's fairly good with most of them. Uh, I've been around it for so long, you know, and so I think that there's a, there's a trust factor there. Uh, they know that, you know, when they see me or, or the crew at the Insider, they... They realize that we're a you know a legit onboard part of the team sort of operation, and so I think for most of them it's a it's a really positive relationship. And you know somebody like Martin Boozer and Jeff King, Dee Dee John, like I've known these people now uh, for so long that uh, you know th- th- I think that there's a real relationship there, and and um, and one that I cherish because I've learned so much from those guys. Uh, I've learned so much about life and and how to live it, and and because uh, they are tough, driven, hardworking, lifestyle kind of people, and so I think the relationship is great. It's been great for me. I hope it's <laughs> I hope it's been great for them. <laughs> we listened to an interview you did with Jeff Schultz. Last year during the race, you said that yes. you said that you owe this race something. Can you yes. Can you explain to us what you meant by the statement? That statement. Well, um, yeah, I, I I truly believe the event. Owes, you know, I owe the event a lot because, you know, as I said, my my early years, I was a young young guy trying to break into television, and. Uh, this this event inspired me and it allowed me to cut teeth as a storyteller. And uh, I just didn't think that, you know, I was in awe of the caliber of story that right away I got to, to work on and to get better at. And so, uh, and I've believed in the cause for so many years now. And because of all of that, right, at the end of the day, uh, you know, my career's not about making money and uh, being successful that way. It's about being able to get to a point in life and look back and say, those were really formidable 
uh, well-spent days of my life. And so when I look back upon the days with, with the Iditarod, I just look back upon a time when uh, I got so much more out of it than I could ever give it. And so um, because of that, I've, I've always felt that uh, I've, I owe this thing a lot, and, and that's why it's an excruciating amount of work and effort, and it's been a long time, and, you know, it's, it's hard to muster the level of energy that it takes to do uh, what we do uh, every year with this thing. But it's that uh, feeling of gratitude that I have for it that brings me back every year and stuff. So, yeah, I, I, I've always felt like I've, I've owed the Iditarod. It's, it's been one of the great opportunities of my career, and it continues to be that today, and I've gotten so much more out of it than I could give back to it. That's neat. The yeah. next part of our show we call Would You Rather. We have five questions for you to answer as quick as you can. Ready? Okay. Yes. Basketball or I did a rod? Oh, well, that's easy. That's I did a rod. Dog or cat? Oh, that's easy too, dog. <laughs> <laughs> Movies or TV shows? Ah, whoa. You know, um, probably TV shows because I don't have a lot of time to sit down and watch movies anymore. Probably a TV show because they're shorter. Okay. Um, winter or fall? Oh, wow. I love winter. I love winter. Fishing or mushing? Fishing. Can you tell <laughs> us what is your go-to song to listen to? Oh, well, I'm a John Denver guy. Like, I love John Denver. So, Country Roads, Rocky Mountain High, you know, the classics. Uh, I've been known to, to blur John Denver in my truck a lot as I'm driving down the highway. So, um, it would be one of many John Denver songs. Lastly, hit us with your top three lists of people we should have on our show. That are involved with the race? Yeah. Okay, that's that's a really good question. Um, well, have you had Mark Nordman on yet? No. I think you need to get Mark Nordman. Okay. Um. Let me think. I'm trying to come up with great, great, because there's so many of them, but I'm just trying to think if there's somebody out there that is, uh, yeah, Mark Norman. I think uh, Mark Norman can give you a lot of good insight because he's been around it for a long time as both a musher and, and now, of course, he's the race management uh, manager and marshal, and he can give you a lot of information on what it is to, to get this race going every year and to get it to get it on. Um, let's see. Uh, and I'm sure you've had you've had Martin and Jeff and Didi on. Have you guys talked to them? Not Didi. Not Didi. Yeah, which I guess she's not running anymore, but she still is uh, 
obviously one of the great names in this thing. Um, I'm trying to think of... Have you had Chaz St. George on yet? No, but we had Rob. Oh, you did. Okay, so what? Okay, so you had Rob. So that, yeah, that that probably covers covers. Uh, how about Bruce Lee? Have you had Bruce Lee on? No, that's a good one. Yeah, Bruce Lee, and I can get you in touch with him. But I think he'd be great. For, he he'd love to do it with you guys. Um, Okay, good Let's idea. That's, yeah. Uh, that's good. Yeah, and let's see. And as far as, like, mushers go, is, is, are, you, are you wanting some musher names? Some people that might be interesting? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter. It doesn't matter, yeah, okay. Um, so I was trying to think of... Uh, you know, I'm trying to think of, like, old-time organizers. Uh, and, and why can't I think of the, uh, his name right now? But he was... He, he, he lives in Nome, and he was one of the early organizers of the race. He was the the Nome connection for Joe Reddington, and he's an old guy with just tremendous stories. What is his name? Um, can I can I email you guys a few names? Yeah. Okay, I'll do that because, uh, and I'll kind of explain who they are and all of that, so you guys can talk. Because there's a few. There's like Gleo Hike too, uh, and he lives in Wasilla, and he was. He never ran the race, but he was one of the three guys that worked with Joe Reddington to start the very first Iditarod. That's cool. And his name, yeah, his name is Gleo Hike, and I can, uh, I can write all of that down. So I'll, I'll send, I'll send uh, an email with a few names uh, of different people that might be interesting. Have you had Libby on? Yes. 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 Okay. Uh, that will be good. For yeah, okay, cool. Thank cool, you. guys. Well, oh. I love what you're doing. This is awesome. And you did a great job. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us. Have a great day. <laughs> you guys as well, of course. Um, I hope to see you out on that trail one of these days. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, uh, Greg. So now they'll go do through the Special thanks to our guest, Greg Heister, for being on our show this week. Subscribe to us on iTunes and tune in next week. We would also like to give credit for Hobo Jim for our theme song, the Iditarod Trail song. And now enjoy a clip from Greg's favorite song, Country Road by John Denver. <laughs> 